You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes, bits, segments, scenes, or sketches, and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is A.D. Bryant, the star and executive producer of Shrill, the acclaimed Hulu series based on the Lindy West book of the same name. The series was originally pitched as, and I quote, a show about a fat young woman who wants to change her life but not her body. Though, as Adi admits, the six-episode first season was much more about the journey her character Annie takes to self-acceptance, the eight-episode second season, which premiered in January of this year, expands the world, gives the other characters more room, and focuses on Annie reckoning with her newly embraced voice as an individual and a journalist. Oh, also Adi is a freaking Saturday Night Live living legend, starring on the show for eight seasons and counting. And what a peculiar season this last one ended up becoming, with the cast filming the last three episodes from their homes. Though shooting from home was hard at first, AD quickly found her groove, including getting to work on truly one of the weirdest sketches of the season, the creepily animated Eleanor's House, with her husband Connor O'Malley. The SNL sketch AD and I focus on this episode is Overnight Salad, a, a pre-taped piece that aired during the last episode of the season filmed before the quarantine and the home editions. The host that week was Daniel Craig, and he plays 80s husband in the sketch. We're going to play the audio now, and it's funny and great and clear, but I implore you to watch it on YouTube if you didn't catch it in March. You just got to see this thing. It is one of the most visually specific sketches in recent memory. So, taped in New York, it's 80 Bryant. Sleep, so I won't make a peep. I'll cook all night my most delicious recipe. Yes, they'll have quite a surprise in the morning when they rise. They'll take a big bite of my overnight salad. It's not easy to make, lots of ingredients it takes, but it's worth it to serve my overnight salad. Take a little bit of lettuce, sprinkle in some cheese, a little scotch of lemon, and a gallon of mayo. Salad. Fifty full hot dogs. Look who's back. It's mayo. Don't skimp on the free chosen root beer. 
the croutons of cookies at the pizza top, of course. Then I let it sit all night on the radiator. In the morning when they rise, my daughter's eyes fill with pride. When they take a big bite of my overnight salad, I'll be the ultimate prize. My husband, king of the guys, with the chumps into a slice of my It's my overnight salad. Mayonnaise and, and, and lettuce left out all night? You need help, Nadine! Mommy, Baxter's not moving. <laughs> I gave him a bite of my overnight salad. <laughs> Are you happy, Nadine? You killed the dog. Are you stupid? Your brain is sick. Maybe it doesn't need a big scoop of mayo. <laughs> There's a quarter in my salad. Why? Well, the quarter is the thing. Nadine, no, 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 no. Just stop. Come on, girls. Let's go. Come on. Well, I guess I'm gonna have to eat this all myself. <laughs> doody, doody, overnight salad. Uh, I'm here with the person behind the sketch you just heard, A.D. Bryant. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so before we get to the inciting incident of this story, I want to set the dang stage. It's it's 2019 <laughs> and you're shooting Shrill. It's the summer because that's when you have off from Saturday Night Live and the only time you could shoot a series. Uh, I, because I am very cool, think of SNL as like an instrument that it takes some time to learn how to play and master so that when you are in your later seasons, you can be more deliberate about what you try to do. So almost no one I know who has worked on the show says they plan specific characters and sketches during the summer, but maybe they have like broad goals. So I, so I guess that's my question. You know, did you have like a feeling last summer of what you might want to do in your eighth season? Maybe something different you wanted to try? <laughs> um, no, I wish I was like smart and thoughtful and did that kind of thing when made plans. Um, I, I feel like, you know, the most that'll happen to me is like sometimes over the summer, you know, whether it's like I'm visiting my family in Arizona or I'm in Portland and shooting shrill or something, I'll like encounter something where I'm like, that's pretty funny, you know, like I should remember that. And I have sort of like an ongoing list in my, you know, just like iPhone notes so that then come September, October, November, when I'm like basically brain dead trying to think of sketches, I can scan through it and be like, oh, yeah, there was... There was like a weird recipe that said overnight salad or there oh. was, you know, those kinds of things. So I'm constantly just like um, I'm basically like procrastinating and <laughs> looking for loose, loose yeah. things that can lead to something, at least something to turn in, yeah. <laughs> you know. So for overnight salad, can you can you tell the story of how the how it first came to you or how the idea first uh, come across your your uh, radar? Sure. Oh, my God. I would be honored. Um, yeah, we so um, like you said, we were in Portland. We were shooting Shrill. And I think maybe the second episode of the second season, there's like a a, a, a scene that happens in a hardware store. Mm -hmm. And our production designers and, and location scouts are really great. 
uh, for Shrill. And so they found this place <laughs> that was basically like the front of it was a hardware store, but the back of it was sort of like half thrift store, half saddle shop for horses mm. and of as as you want to need. Uh-huh. Um And basically, as we were just like killing time between scenes, we were kind of going through the thrift store area. And Lindy West, who wrote the book Shrill, found this recipe that said um, overnight sat. It was just like a weird self-published like cookbook, (laughs) basically. And we were flipping through it. And there was uh, something I think it said like Grandma Galuzzo's overnight salad or something. And then just over the course of, like, hours, we kept talking about, like, God, there's something so sad about, like, making a salad overnight in hopes that it tastes good the next day when, like, what's good about salad is that it's fresh, I guess. Like, it just – everything about it made us sad. And also that, like, the idea that, like, it's a proud recipe for someone and there was so much mayonnaise in the recipe, which was – just felt so gnarly and – and so then, like, just kind of around set, I sort of, sort of started, like, singing little bits of it, of the song. And we were just, like, laughing and other people were chiming in. And Rob Klein, who was the head writer of SNL, and now he writes on Shrill with me, um, uh, we, we just were sort of like, that's it. That's going to be a big hot sketch for us in the darkest hours. And it is really funny to me that, like, basically in – I guess what March which is like really when you're starting to run truly Mm -hmm. out of ideas and you're like just hurting you're kind of like limping in the race that is finishing the season that was like when I returned to my notes and was like I guess uh overnight salad (laughs) so that's that's kind of so Rob and I wrote it together for the show what can you tell me other things that were in this recipe like how wild was it and also was the cookbook from the past or did it seem like a fairly modern thing someone was doing? It felt like someone in the early 90s had printed out like their own family recipes and then bound them with like a little spiral. And then somehow it ended up in this weird thrift store. And um, I wish I could have gone back and bought the the cookbook now because I would love to like see what exactly is in the recipe. I mean, the only thing I remember was like, romaine lettuce and and mayonnaise Mm -hmm. and that you were supposed to basically put it in the fridge overnight which is just (laughs) revolting you know um so yeah i mean that's 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 the gist (laughs) after the sketch aired there's there's a clip of you singing it on set that you posted on your instagram been waiting all night for my overnight salad is that it? That's, yeah. That's Quite good. a surprise with my whole night salad. <laughs> <laughs> Open my eyes to taste the overnight salad. Oh, it tastes good. <laughs> so when you were just sort of singing it on set of Shrill, you know, were the lyrics sort of changing around where you're just sort of singing anything where they're like specific phrases from that time that you're like, oh, this will sort of go into whatever this eventually becomes? I never thought that like we would like really write it for the show. Oh, really? I just kind of thought it was like a bit we were doing on set, honestly. And like, I don't know. I always like sing little songs. I mean, it's how I, I've written lots of songs for SNL, basically. It's just like little germs of ideas. Um, I mean, the same with like the Joan song that I wrote 
with for Harry Styles. Like it's just always kind of like little tunes that I'm singing around, and then later I'm like, well, maybe that could be something. Um, but so yeah, I mean, there were little <laughs> little threads of it that we came up with on the set of Shrill, which was basically just like this woman hoping that it impresses her family, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of like uh, sorrow, <laughs> kind of like just really wanting to have like status with her family based on yeah. her salad. You know, in in general, after all these years, do you feel like you have like I don't know, like a, like a spidey sense or, or or something, you know, like a sense of like, oh, they're th- for something might work, you know. Are there any sort of feelings that trigger in you, like, oh, that's a good idea? Like, do you, is there something deep inside of you that's like, make sure that you like remember these things because they're this is more than just like a f- funny bit to do around. This might be like a funny bit that like the entire country will want to consume. Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm like this is it or like that's gonna. Yeah. I, I know this is the one. I feel like if anything, it's almost the opposite. Where like now I've been at the show long enough and I've had you know enough pieces hit that like I'm not so worried about it anymore, and so I feel less precious oh, <laughs> about like my criteria of like what I'm willing to like toss at the wall in some way. Where like. You know, and and I do think it's kind of what you were saying earlier about like learning to get comfortable playing your instrument where it's like, you know, my first couple years I was really hung up on the show about like what what would work on SNL and what 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 do they do on SNL and I'm trying to figure out how I work at SNL, you know, and Saturday Night Live, like Mm -hmm. that element of it and you know, I've been there long enough now that now it's like, well, it's kind of just more fun to like write what I like and see if that'll work on the show. And typically that's like, that is what works on the show. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like taking some of the tightness and the pressure off it and just being like, yeah, this is an insanely stupid idea. (laughs) And that's actually what I like about it. And so that's actually what people like about it, you know? Yeah, it's it's, essentially the opposite of what I said, which is, Instead of, oh, you have more filters of you know what's right, you have fewer filters preventing you from, like, going with whatever your instinct is. Yeah, and I mean, I, I do think that's, like, a little bit just, like, the privilege of being there for a really long time where, like, you know, I, I definitely think, like, in the early days of doing things like girlfriends talk show or those kinds of things, like, I was really fixated on, like, okay, this is, you know, this is something that would fit on SNL. It's a talk show format. It's the top of show. Like, you know, just doing the math of it mm-hmm. um, and and mostly just, you know, wanting to be productive for the show so that it felt like I was contributing or that I was, you know, like a valuable member of the team or something. And 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 not that I don't do that now, but it's a little bit it's just like you realize that all that scheming and and um, math and like number crunching on what you think is going to work, it's kind of just a waste of your energy. And yeah. like it kind of just makes you miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it, and it takes I mean, it truly took me probably four years to stop doing that. You know, was there a specific moment that you remember where you got something on that maybe you thought like, oh, this never get on that just felt like so specifically too you or the sort of idea that you're like, well, this is a me thing and maybe I'll try it. And then it worked that sort of emboldened you. Yeah, I actually think I can think of exactly what that would be (laughs) for me, which was be like, um, it's a sketch we only did one time, but it was like to me, like exactly what I like. And it was this 
like waterbed warehouse sketch, mm-hmm. basically where I play like an insane woman who is singing again, I guess. And yeah. she, yeah, it's just like she has a little catchphrase and is doing local commercials about like waterbeds are the best kind <laughs> of thing. And I wrote that with Mikey Day and it was just like, when we wrote it, I was just like, this is legally certifiably stupid, you know? Like, it's not, uh, it's not like, smart or crafty mm-hmm. and, you know, it's not, like, super structurally, you know, based where it's like, oh, this is the kind of thing. It just, like, was fun yeah. <laughs> and, like, kind of leaned into, like, you know, I think ultimately the thing that I feel like I really know how to do well, which is like writing from the point of view of like a silly, self-absorbed character who is trying really hard to have status or is trying mm-hmm. really, you know, and that like, and so like, of course, like the idea that uh, a local commercial or a, a, a local business that the wife of the husband who owns the business has used this as her chance to get in the spotlight, like it's so much more fun to write from that place than to write from being like, well, I think Lorne likes it when people <laughs> wear hats or like, you know, it's just like you're just guessing about things that really kind of honestly aren't comedy. They're like, yeah. it's like, you know, it's just logistical politics and yeah. math or something. It's just like a waste of your time. You know, as you said, Overnight Salad doesn't happen on the show until March of that year. So did you not even try to pitch it before then? Was that the first <laughs> week that it went yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, I didn't really need it, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah. I had other ideas or things that popped up, and that was kind of a week where I was like, I'm, I don't know, I don't have a ton in my <laughs> in my chamber, and let's see what I got in the notes. And then I kind of just sat down with it and just emailed, because Rob doesn't work at the show anymore, and so yeah. he and I kind of just emailed drafts back and forth, but I mean... I don't know. It's it is kind of the nice thing about being there for a long time is like I can kind of crank a sketch out like that in like an hour. Whereas mm-hmm. like you know in my early days, sometimes I would spend like seven hours writing one sketch, and that's torture, <laughs> you know. And it like takes all the fun out of it. Just to to kind of get a sense of the timetable of sort of how SNL works, did you pitch it Monday night? Was this a thing no. that you? No, you're like, yeah. <laughs> this has to, I mean, I, people have to see this for this to make sense. Yeah, and I also think, like, you know, Monday is kind of a thing where, like, you're pitching to the host, and it's almost more about making them feel comfortable than it mm-hmm. is about actually, like, airing your ideas. Um, I, I don't know if that makes sense. But, like, yeah, yeah you, you're – I would I, – I pretty much – I don't think – since my first year have I pitched something I'm actually going to write on Monday. Um, part of that is just you want the surprise at the table read on yeah. Wednesday. You don't want people to know your bit um, or, like, know the joke of it or the turn of the sketch or whatever. So, um, yeah, I don't. I didn't pitch it on Monday. I just kind of wrote it on Tuesday, worked on uh, on the music with our music director, Eli Brugerman, and then... Yeah, he and I had kind of cranked it out, and then I went home, um, <laughs> and <laughs> and then yeah, did it at the table read. So yeah. it was fun. Yeah. So um, to ask specifically about those parts. So first, um, the writing part. So it's you have this song and sort of the the basic idea of overnight salad, which is, you know, gets you through maybe the first forty five seconds of this sketch. How? How did then the idea evolve to sort of the full sketch that we end up seeing with the turn and then the sort of escalation after that turn? Um, 
I, I don't know. I mean, pretty quickly, like, I think what we really liked was the idea that, like, um, it's sort of like a solo fantasy that then is completely shattered and mm -hmm. kind of like you're almost in her, like, dream world and then it's kind of shattered by this, like, reality of, like, this thing is basically poison and it's disgusting and... And I, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a basic classic sketch where you take like a simple premise and then heighten and heighten and heighten. Um, I mean, I would say my favorite part of that was thinking about like her <laughs> thinking that making this salad would make her husband the king of the guys, like that, <laughs> that it is would. my favorite line. That, well, thanks. That Me too. Like, I just loved that it was like, oh, this disgusting salad is going to make other men think that guy really fucks, you know, or something. Like, it's, like, just seems like such an insane um, line of thinking or that her daughters would be so proud of her and all that stuff. And so, yeah, it was just sort of, like, taking it to the turn, keeping it simple, kind of. And, mm -hmm. um, and then basically just, I mean, this was part of why we wanted to do it with Daniel, just, like, finding an actor who could just let it rip. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like just really go hard at at me. Um, and I, I, you know, I love to play characters that are like, of course, yes, uh, while someone is screaming at them. So that's kind of what we did, <laughs> you know. Did you consider ever doing it as a live sketch? And if, if, if not, or kind of assuming not, what about video was sort of necessary with what you were trying to do? Oh, gosh. I, I mean, it's funny because I think it probably could totally work as a live sketch, um, but we didn't really talk about it. I mean, I, I also just think generally speaking, it's hard to make an almost completely musical sketch work in like without having little breaks for dialogue, you know, yeah. where like, yeah, like because I feel like you could think of like Diner Lobster or like some sketches like that where it's like they're musical, but they're kind of broken up with like. Yeah. spoken chunks and this is kind of like a true song that then ends with dialogue so those are they're just hard because the audience can't always hear them in a live sketch and that kind of can't hear the jokes and and also just like I also thought part of the joke was just seeing the salad be made and like mm. that kind of thing to do set that live would be really difficult but you know with with doing it on tape we get to like basically use our incredible art department and like they you know made this insane thing and I literally got to have 50 hot dogs or I literally <laughs> you know like those kinds of things so they, they are really what like add to the joke of just the horrific visual yeah. you know so as you mentioned working with the, the musical director are you just sort of humming the parts and they're working what does that sort of process look like <laughs> It's, I feel like it's different for every cast member because we're all, like, not musicians. <laughs> but um, for me, and this is kind of how I've done almost all my songs with him, is, like, I'll kind of sing a melody into my phone with after I've written the sketch, you know? So I'll kind of just be writing it, like, knowing basic song structure, and then I'll it you know depending if it's early enough like i'll go in and I'll, I'll like email him the file and then go to his office and be like okay here's kind of the vibe i'm thinking mm -hmm. and a lot of times you'll send him like a link for a music video or something and be like this is kind of how you want it to sound but with this melody mm -hmm. and then usually he'll spend like an hour like putting something quickly together 
and then you go and kind of give him notes or talk about it. And so that's kind of what we did. Um, and yeah, and you kind of just go. It, it's pretty amazing. They basically build a song around your melody. Yeah. Um, Do you and, remember what vibe you told them you you wanted for it? Were there specific artists you mentioned? Um, well, I remember I, I didn't. I don't think I mentioned a specific artist, but I was like I I remember being kind of like it can be kind of dreamy, kind of like fifties, almost like Lynchy, mm-hmm. you know, like David Lynch vibe kind of. Um, but I was like, but it has to be really bright and sweet, so that when you like break it, it's hell. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean that's that's really it. But Eli's amazing and can kind of just crank it out. And like, yeah, I remember when he first sent it, it was like a little almost like too sock hoppy or something. Mm. And so then we kind of changed it a little bit. And it's just like a really quick process. So that basically, you know, we start doing that on Tuesday night. By Wednesday, it's like a fully formed song <laughs> with like all the instruments and all the you know, mixing and all that stuff so that when you perform it at the table read, it's it's essentially exactly what you hear on Saturday, you know? So by Tuesday night, just just for the record, do you remember how late into the, the evening, into Wednesday morning, you're going back and forth on this is? I, I don't think we worked that late. Like, I honestly think we, because I, I think what happened, I, I'm truly like, this was months ago, but now I'm sure. like, it feels like 50 years ago. But yeah, I think, as I recall, like, I went to the host dinner that night. So I think I had sent him, like, a file uh, of me singing it. And then I was like, I have to go to the host dinner. And when I come back, let's like check it out. And so I think, you know, around 11, I came back. It was a little swingy. He adjusted it. And then I think we by midnight, we were pretty much done. Are you generally like one of the later people? Or do you feel like you're about medium? I feel like I used to be one of the later people. And now I'm one of the earlier people. And I also just think that comes with like seniority there <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> You don't need to prove that you're still at your office at like six in the morning. Yeah. And also just like, you know, I used to throw a lot more like I would write like three or four pieces in a night, you know, Mm. and and now I probably write one piece that's like mine and then I probably pitch on someone else's piece or, you know, and and even that is kind of like, you know, it's like you're just helping on someone else's. You pitch jokes for an hour and a half and then they put it together and and then I have one thing that's kind of like a thing that I spearheaded and then I'm kind of done, you know? Yeah. But it, it that's, some of that is just like that trial and error I was talking about, you know? Yeah. Do you remember the table read and how it went? I remember it going really well. I mean, I think, you know, music always kind of plays well at the table just because it breaks up like what sometimes feels like 3,000 sketches, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like... um but I, I remember that people liked it and just also that, like, Daniel Craig, like, went very hard <laughs> at the table, which is always, like, really helpful, you know? Like, and I, I remember before, sometimes before you, before the table read, you'll go and give the host, like, a little note just to be mm-hmm. like, oh, just FYI for this one, you know, do it with the, this kind of accent or look out for this weird made-up word we wrote or with whatever, that kind of thing. And I remember I said, like, you know, this one, you kind of come in at the end, and I think the harder you go, the better it'll play. And he really did that, <laughs> you know, so. Um, were there any major notes or rewrites from that script before shooting that you remember? 
any major changes or even minor changes? I don't think so. I think it was pretty much as it was at the table. I think the only thing that we changed was just adding like more visual visual jokes kind of. So like adding maybe the twins like spitting the food out or just writing those kinds of things into the script. Because a lot mm-hmm. of times you kind of don't write those in at the table read just because you don't want Lorne to have to like talk over your singing in the middle of the sketch and read those directions or those kinds of things. So, so yeah, I want to talk about the, the aesthetics of the sketch were like so precise and you're, you're dressed as this sort of 1950s, 1960s housewives, but the, the colors like it's pink and teal and yellow and it's, it's like Lynchian as you mentioned, but also kind of like Pee Wee Herman, but it's just sort of like so specific you know do you remember what direction you gave what were those conversations like of like what you were hoping it would look like yeah you know it's funny because i feel like that's the kind of thing that i used to kind of just be like i don't know whatever you guys think it should be a 50s and and since maybe working on shrill and like working more closely with production designers like i've gotten a little more into being like oh it would be cool if it could be like this or this can help aid the joke if it's like a little more stylized or something um and so i think as as we were writing the sketch i had like kind of google image searched like you know just like some like william eggleston photos or like kind (laughs) of just like colorful like uh 50s 60s houses and those kinds of things and i kind of put them in a little file so that then when it did get picked, I like had some reference points. Cause also, you know, like when the sketch gets picked, it's like, it's kind of like a hundred miles an hour and you're getting like a million questions at once. And you really just have one, maybe 15 minute production meeting on Wednesday night. And then after that, it's like, you kind of don't get to see every piece of it. And that's the Mm -hmm. one time you have like the costume designer and the DP and everybody all together. And so I've been trying to like go in with more of a point of view now on those, just because it's also like you're essentially making a tiny movie and when else do you get to do that with like no <laughs> no restrictions? And so to me, I'm like, oh, I should like really make the most of it. So I, I did like give people reference images and and, you know, it's really nice because I think a lot of times because we are just like, you know, writing these things overnight. And then it's like everybody's flying by the seat of their pants. So I think it's kind of, I know like Andrea from Damages Studios who does the art direction for a lot of our videos. Like she always gets excited when I have like ideas because she's like, great, that gives us something to go off of rather than us just being like, uh, it's a house, (laughs) you know? What were the conversations like with the director, Paul Brigante, about tone? Like what were those conversations like? Oh, man, it was so fun. I mean, Paul, well, I've been really lucky that I've worked with Paul a bunch, you know, just over the years at SNL now. And, like, we really have a shorthand for, like, what we think works and what doesn't. And he, I feel like the thing that we both really liked that we started getting really into was just, like, figuring out all the different places and ways I could be putting this food into the salad to just like keep it interesting and keep Mm -hmm. it kind of like keep the camera moving and and all that stuff so I mean he he's so fantastic and he's just a really funny person on his own so he's so great at, at like building those things and and we uh did that video Joan together too and so like yeah we kind of had like a little bit of a rhythm it's interesting because those two sketches are tonal in a way. I mean, that's it's sort of only really able to really be done in video in the same way of like, you know, like this sketch, the 
the first sort of like big joke comes 30 seconds in, which is the sort of fun thing you can't do live. At all, but like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But there's like a vibe. And if you watch it over and over again, you're like, it is much more Lynchian than like maybe first place. Um, was that <laughs> deliberate? Is it part of like you're doing it different ways and you're seeing what's happening on the day? Well, I, I think it's like exactly what you're saying, which is like, there is like a little bit of a patience with the pre-tapes that you can't quite get with the live sketches. And so like there is a little more space for like art. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Like on some level. And I think that goes back even to like, you know, the Albert Brooks days or what, whatever, you know, those old like Adam McKay videos and stuff like that too, where it's like, there's just like a little more space. Um, yeah. and, and so you can kind of like, get a little creative or try something that's like, I mean, my favorite spot in the show is the last sketch of the night, always. Yeah. And that was even when I was a kid, you know? And so like, when you get to be in that space, it's like, why not try something, you know? And and so I, that's totally true. Like, I think both those sketches, that's true, where it's like, I don't think the first joke comes for like 30 seconds, but I always like that build, you know? And yeah. um, And I think it leads to like big payoffs where there's like, you're along for the ride. There's something like a little more narrative based in it than maybe like your typical live sketch, which might be a little more game based, you know? Yeah. There's a sketch like this broadly, there's there's sort of two ways it can go where you in so much as you have this sort of person doing an absurd thing. And then at some point, other people come in and they either surprisingly agree to this premise or go the complete opposite direction, right? Like there's a version of this sketch where someone comes in and it's like, this is delicious. And you're like, it's like, I remember, it's like there's sometimes, I feel like there's been sketches recently where someone's singing a weird song and then somehow everyone knows that song. Yeah, um, yeah. Where this obviously is the thing of, we're going to point out how absurd it is. And not only just point out, we're going to go sort of the extreme direction of this is like poisonously absurd. Do you remember deciding that like oh this is ultimately what it's about that it's going to twist so hard and we're going to sort of condemn this this woman well i think it was rob klein's idea that it makes the dog die <laughs> um and so then i think we were just like oh let's just like keep going down that road you know and like just make it the worst possible thing i mean it's kind of the the easiest answer to someone hoping that this salad will make them beautiful, in love, uh, have a healthy family, <laughs> like all those things. And that instead it literally like shatters their family dynamic, kills their dog and kills themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's just like hell on, a, on ice kind of, you know. I was just thinking about the how you repeat the phrase, her brain was sick. Does, th does that have, what are you ult ultimately are communicating about this person with with that phrasing of her brain is sick like what is who is this person and and it, i let me to to take it further as we talk about sort of your performance like who who is this character to you <laughs> well i mean not to get too heavy with it but i no. honestly think there's like something to be said about like the female servitude of making food <laughs> you mm -hmm. know like and i think there is um you know, that there is like 
and you know, I think obviously dynamics have changed a lot over the decades, but like there's still kind of like mom makes the food kind of thing, you know, like there's that energy just exists in the world. And I, and it's something I've been thinking about in quarantine too, because I'm such a bad cook, but like I'm mm. trying to get better, but like, um, you know, it's just like you spend all this time and I've had this experience a million times where like once I tried to make cookies and then I used salt instead of sugar because I just wasn't paying attention and they're disgusting and you had to throw them away, you know, yeah. like and like I guess I just think there's something um, really sweet and really sad about like spending all night thinking that the outcome is going to be good and then it's horrible and and I think it's particularly like female to do it through food and to make it in an effort to her family. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I just think there's like there's a deep desire for love and adoration. <laughs> and like the only way <laughs> that she can get it is through cooking. And she's she's instead gone the opposite way. Like, I don't know. I think there's something kind of true about that that yeah. feels kind of real. I mean, like I remember you know, nights as a kid where, like, my mom worked to make dinner and then being like, this is gross, <laughs> you know? And, like, it's maybe the cruelest thing that a person could do, like, in that dynamic. So, I don't know. I just think there's something sort of, like, emotionally human about it. Yeah, I mean, there's certain... It's, like, existentialist of, like, this is this person... Like, this person is finding... All we know about this character is that she finds great meaning in this thing she's doing. Like, this yes. Is, and then there is, like, a... It almost becomes like a prison of her own design. Totally. <laughs> um, the other thing I was thinking about your performance was I was listening to your episode of Las Culturistas, and you say that like a lot of your characters are inspired by the women you watched star in local commercials growing up. <laughs> yes. Do you feel like there's some of that in there? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am always like fascinated. And I, I you know, I got to say like SNL is the best place for this thing uh, to be front row seat to people that are interested in fame or who mm -hmm. are at the height of their fame or like find great value in being in the spotlight. And it's like something personally that I like really struggle with because I I'm just like not comfortable with it. And I think like the the pressure to be beautiful or look a certain way or all those things are like expectations that I find really like toxic and difficult, you know, mm -hmm. and I think there's a little bit of that in this character and I feel that about like kind of that same that waterbeds lady or like a lot of the characters I play on the show where it's like they kind of want to be in the spotlight or like want adoration and praise, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but but what comes with that is also like scrutiny or yeah. or or being under like this lens of focus and I do think that's like especially you know, people who are in sort of like humble circumstances wanting that spotlight. I think that's like an interesting area, <laughs> you know. And so it is like on some level, this salad is her version of like yeah. stepping on the red carpet or whatever, you know. I mean, yeah. in general, were there any notes from Lorne or opinions from Lorne about it? I mean, all I ever heard was that everybody loves salad, baby. <laughs> All right. Um, do you remember it playing on the night? Vaguely. I, I feel like I was in a quick change while it was playing for part of it. But I remember being really relieved that it went to air because I just felt like it was kind of uh, psychotic <laughs> on some level. Like just 
a little bit um, out of maybe the normal like pace of the show or something. Yeah. And so I felt really honored on some level that like, you know, I mean, I always feel that way about pieces where it's like essentially just you for 80% of the piece and then the host comes in or, you know, you're not in there with a lot of other people. It's like, um, yeah, I, I always feel like shocked when those things go or grateful. Yeah. Because in so much as if there's a person who's watching the show just for Daniel Craig, they're like, where's Daniel Craig? Is he coming? Yeah, or they're like, who's this bitch singing? Like, get out of here, you know? And we'll be right back with more A.D. Bryant. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with A.D. Bryant. I want to discuss how the sketch connects to a shrill, considering it started there uh, in the middle of you working on the second season. But but first, can you just sort of um, talk about coming out of the first season of shrill? What was the story you were hoping to tell with the second season? Oh, gosh. I I mean, I feel like part of this goes to just fitting in Trill between seasons of SNL, where uh, the way the first season worked, it was really just six episodes, which isn't very long. And I just felt like we didn't have a ton of space, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it, for the story that we were telling and what we had pitched to Hulu. It was like, OK, now we have six episodes to do this just purely because of my schedule. And so... And also we went straight to series. We didn't get to make a pilot. And so, you know, to go straight from a script to making an entire television show, it was kind of like this crazy 200 miles an hour, like, ride. And so then when the first season came out and it got picked up, I was like, oh, I'm so relieved we get to do it again because I learned so much doing that first season. And now I feel like we have, you know, Basically, we started writing the second season while I was at SNL so that mm-hmm. we could have more time to shoot and be able to do eight episodes instead of six. And so suddenly, I think the thing that I was excited about was, you know, yes, we could tell 
my character's story, Annie's story about like her growth and her experience with like, you know, her own self-image. But there was also space to like tell a little bit more about these other characters and fill out the world a little bit more so that it wasn't just like only focused on her body and and we could kind of open up the story to like other mm -hmm. parts of her life and other parts of her friends and family's life. And it just made, I think, for a better show um, that we just didn't have the space for in the first season. But I'm really proud of the first season. I think it's like truly a character study where like it's kind of only about this one character and watching her get from point A to point B of like not hating herself, which, yeah. you know, I think is is worth telling too. Besides the fact that you found the cookbook on the set, are there other ways you think this sketch feels like an extension of Shrill? I mean, definitely there's like a food relationship mm -hmm. that I think is connected on some level where like, you know, I think there's like a lot of judgment and and weirdness that particularly women, but really all people have with food and and what they eat and what other people see them eat and what is disgusting in one person's eyes might be delicious in someone else's eyes. And I, I think there's like a little overlap yeah. there, you know? <laughs> um, I don't know if it's like the exact same thing, but. You know, it's partly because I, I was thinking about you know, I was rewatching Trill while and watching this sketch. You know, there was connections that I saw, especially with how your your mom, the character Julia Sweeney plays as your mom on the show. Though their hangups sort of with food were different, there still was a sort of tension there that felt like you're presenting them in different ways, but there was a darkness in sort of in both and both how the the mom was, I guess forcing this sort of traumatic relationship she has with food onto her children? Did you, well, do you yeah. I, I feel like there's definitely, and I mean, this is something that I think is true of most women my age and older, is like they're, most of our mothers had some sort of disordered or difficult relationship mm -hmm. to food in their body, you know? And so like that sort of like naturally comes out, <laughs> you yeah. know, and 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 I think it's affected probably the way that a lot of ladies of my generation deal with food and deal with, um, you know, often not looking at is just like the fuel that moves your body so that you can do your work, but instead this like place of like what's good, what's bad, what's an indulgence. Ooh, if I eat that, well then I better, you know, like it's just this constant. Um, sort of loop in your yeah. mind that often is something that was sort of passed down from your mother, your grandmother, other women at your dinner table or at your, you know, cafeteria table as a kid. And I think it's, to me, it's just like this fascinating mm -hmm. hellish loop <laughs> that's sort of been imposed on on women overall. Um, and And so I do think that that's part of it. And even like, I don't know, even the, the all the mayonnaise and all the stuff in the sketch, it's like part of it is about being like this indulgence that's mm -hmm. going to be such a treat, <laughs> you know? I don't know. I think it's kind of a, a very like fruitful area. Yeah. It also, um, the sketch also reminded me of the episode from your second season set at the Women Are Having a Moment conference, <laughs> which yeah. I, I just love. I, 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 I love that episode um, as a side note. But I, I, I feel <laughs> like it's it's the most... 
the, of the series so far. It's the most sort of explicitly, most poignantly satirical of the episodes. So it sort of makes sense. But, you know, how do the sketch and the episode, how do you feel like the sketch and maybe the episode line up or relate in, in what it says about empowerment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a hell. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's like, it's a really complicated, goofy thing. And, you know, I feel like if if you're looking at the sketch, which is like kind of about maybe this more like antiquated relationship between a man and a woman, where mm-hmm. like she is fully making food and, and that's kind of her sole purpose in life is to you know, and not not that stay-at-home moms are like this old-timey thing. It's a yeah. modern thing, but you understand what I mean, where it's like the roles are really defined. And um, and I think, you know, in an effort to break free of that kind of relationship that is in overnight salad, you almost have something that swings completely the opposite way into like girl boss, women are having a moment, hashtag girls can do it too, that is ultimately kind of patronizing and like, um, and in a lot of ways probably diminishing to what like women are capable of. I I don't know. I mean, now I'm like, is this about a joke? (laughs) It's so dark, but, but I think it's, you know, there is like something to like, especially that episode, Waham, like we're really trying to look at like how... I think women have really for a long time tried to like put themselves into this girls can do anything guys can box, but sometimes it's not about substance and it it ends up kind of coming back around to salad in like mm-hmm. a brutal way. Yeah. Um, and ultimately that's kind of an empty thing t- to chase that isn't worth our minds, <laughs> you know, yeah. space. And and it just, yeah, it's like feels very like ashes to ashes, dust to dust, salad to salad. Like we got to get out of here, you know. The other thing I was thinking is like there, there's, there's an anchor to both that's sort of under the surface, or there's a rage, or there's a tension to both that is everyone is being nice, or at least everyone is presenting a smile, and then but there's sort of <laughs> a rage underneath. Yeah. Can you talk about how? anger secretly or somewhat um, unexpectedly fuels more of your work than I think people think? Because I feel like everyone's like, oh, 80, she's she's so nice. Oh, my God. Jesse, we're, we're getting there. Um, I mean, this is like fully what I talk about in therapy <laughs> is like my deep, overwhelming discomfort with anger, but that I really have it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's, you know, kind of just what we were saying. It's a very feminine thing to like, one, cover it by crying, or two, cover it by smiling, you know? And um, and I think those are things that I definitely am, like, working through in my work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, um, and, and actually, like, I mean, now we're really going deep, but, like, I also think it's part of what, like, deeply bonds um, my husband and I in both of our work is, like, yeah. we're mad, <laughs> you know? Like... <laughs> We're fucking mad at these systems and we're trying to like get at them. And I think we both have really different tactics, but ultimately like we're kind of rooted in like the same belief of like what's right and wrong and what's um, what's awful, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So anyway. That's, no, that's really interesting to think of 
y'all's work as sort of like mirror images of like whatever we mean by like masculine or feminine rage and yeah i mean i feel like in a lot of ways what we do complements each other very well and it's something we laugh at because like recently we both discovered that you can look at like your analytics on instagram and see your demographics or something like that mm. and like i think mine is like 85 percent female and his is like 90 percent male or something <laughs> We were both laughing about, like, that is bone chilling. <laughs> um, if, if there's another, I was thinking more, that if there's another similarity I can point to about your work on SNL and Shrill is around the idea of confidence, but through sort of different angles, in so much as, like, the second season of Shrill comes after your, you know, as you said, after your character, Annie has sort of a breakthrough in season one where she sort of finds her confidence and her voice and then focuses on how she decides to use it and like what's an appropriate amount of confidence and how is it at the expense of sort of other people. Um, and then, you know, on SNL, a lot of times you're playing characters rooted in sort of extreme confidence or stu stupidity of, or you're playing people <laughs> this sort of stupidity of overconfident people. Is there something about confidence that is interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's connected to a lot of what we were talking about earlier where like, you know, I think growing up for me, I my understanding of confidence was kind of backwards and really not like from my family. It was more from like what I consumed in the media of like the people that, de that deserve to be confident are thin, white, blonde women. <laughs> like essentially, that was like my understanding, I think. And, and I think on some level, I just growing up and moving to Chicago and and getting out into the world a little bit, I started to see like, oh, there's all different kind of confident people, mm -hmm. but sometimes they're confident for the worst reasons or like, you know, they're confident in confidently wrong or confidently yeah. cruel or, you know, um, those kinds of things. And, and yeah, I mean, I definitely think exploring like where someone's confidence comes from is like, a theme that constantly I like come back to, you know, yeah. and um, and it is like kind of one of those things where it's like you can only kind of like write what you know and like write from your own experience. And so it is kind of like the well that I end up drawing from a lot, even in just like weird indirect ways of like, you know, I think of like earlier stuff that I did on like Girlfriends Talk Show or even like those all girl music videos where it was like trying on different levels of confidence or trying mm -hmm. on different things that felt foreign to me in a lot of ways to try and act like a pussycat doll or to try and, you know, just yeah. that that inherently there's like comedy and trying on attitudes that don't really match with your demeanor or how you mm -hmm. look or whatever. So the thing that I forgot until I was preparing for this interview is that those pre-taped overnight salad was essentially the last sketch that aired during a live episode before I quarantine. I was just thinking about that today. It's really like sad on some level. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what the SNL at homes were like? Did it feel like making SNL? Um, it's hard to say. Yes and no. I mean, I will say when we were first talking about doing SNL at home, I just was like, no, we can't, you know, like, and, and not that like on the producibility level, I was just like so sad, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, 
and and being in New York and hearing constant sirens and I you know don't live far from the Javits Center where they had set up like a temporary military hospital and like I was just like how are we going to do this you know and you know we had multiple crew members lose family members from covid and it just felt uh, you know I think the week before one of our first shows we lost Hal our our music yeah. supervisor it was just like how are we going to do this? Is this too, we're just too like devastatingly sad. And um, and then you know we started doing it, and I I got to say I was like totally dead wrong. Like I was so <laughs> grateful to be doing it, and also just to like get on Zooms with everybody. And and I also really think you know initially I was like, man, this is going to suck. It's going to feel like just this really neutered version of SNL. And in the end, I actually think it was like. Sometimes when you have extra parameters, it's like you have to get creative or you have to think outside the box. And certainly, like when I think about the journals piece or that I did or or Eleanor's house, those are things I would have never, ever, 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 ever pitched or written for the show that I did because we were at home. And they ended up being like some of my favorite things I did all season. Um, and same with like working on the sketches where it was groups of us. I mean, it was so complicated. We had Zooms that were going, but we were also running actual filming on our phones, but then we all had lofts. And so like for every sketch, there were probably over, you know, and then we would do multiple takes. So probably over 50 files for every sketch of audio, video, all the different mm-hmm. things that then we would upload, then our post-production team would coordinate and multiple editors. It was so complicated. I kind of can't believe it It happened. And like, you know, and that was so early too in the pandemic, like yeah. as far as where we are now. Um, I'm so proud of, of especially our post-production team, Matt Yonks, our post-production supervisor, like, he did that all, you know, yeah. like he he wrangled all those editors, all those actors and and got that footage into look like a show. And it was pretty amazing. And it was really like it was cool because it basically took all the systems that makes SNL and shattered them. Yeah. And then we had to start from scratch. And it, it was totally I mean, it's something I hope we never have to do again. But I. <laughs> I also am really proud of what everybody made and how it, you know, we managed to make it feel like an ensemble show, even though we were all really far from each other. They're sort of like just watching, especially by the second or third one, where it's like, how would you be working on sort of a longer timeline? You know, like obviously SNL's whole thing is like all in a week. Would you be pitching sketches two weeks out so that they can mail wigs around? Like sort of how does sort of the basics of by this, by those sort of later two episodes, where it looked like you, it was produced, opposed to the first one, which was shaggy and sort of a charming way. Yeah. How, how did that sort of come together? Um, you know, I would say, well, I'll say this too. Like, there was never like, oh, we're gonna do three of these. Like, it was yeah. kind of like we did the first one, and now we'll probably not do any more. And then it was kind of like, actually, we're gonna do another one, but it'll be. A, two weeks from now or like, you know, there it yeah. just kind of was everybody flying by the seat of their pants. So there wasn't really a master plan. Um, again, just like our 
our costume designer, Tom Broker, was literally mailing wigs out of his house. And like, you know, I mean, it was loosey goosey. I know for a fact, Sudi Green, our writing supervisor, walked across the Brooklyn Bridge to bring Heidi a wig for their Bailey sketch. And they met in the middle. Like, you know, I mean, it was loosey goddamn goosey. And I think that kind of added to the charm of it. I mean, for Eleanor's house, that was something that essentially I pitched for the second show. But I was like, I don't know that we could do it in time. And that was when they were like, we do think we're going to do a third one. So why don't you just start making it? And so I shot that with Connor. We wrote it and shot it with uh, in this the week that we were doing the second show, but then sent all the footage to Cole Cush, who animated the whole thing, knowing that we could do it for the last show. so th- there was a little bit of that, but like I think for that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles sketch, like they absolutely did that in only two weeks, you know? Um, That's amazing. And, and that was something that they had like read at table once, but then didn't go, but they had it and they were like, we could do this. So, I mean, those kind of things, like Cole animated Eleanor's house in three weeks, which is mm. insane. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there was a little bit of long-term stuff, but mostly it was just like, the week of and i will say that it was a little different where like instead of like turning in your footage on friday the way we did wood for a pre-tape we had to get it in by wednesdays so Mm -hmm. that they had time to edit just little things like that but other than that it mostly followed the kind of the same template of our normal week do you have a specific favorite moment oh gosh i mean you know it was really fun to just watch the show Oh, yeah. I, I haven't in probably close to a decade had that experience of sitting at home and not knowing what was going to be in the show. And so we had a big group text, you know, that was like all the cast. And like mm. as sketches would pop up, I hadn't seen them because someone had made them at home. And so then we would kind of like not necessarily live tweet, but we would live text to each other mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, that was so cool. Or like, oh, my God, Pete, your mom or, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, it was just like really, really fun. And I think it it was very like uniting for all of us as a cast. And, and you know, it's also like the end of the season. You're all kind of getting sick of each other. You're exhausted. You're, you've been working these crazy hours. And and so to kind of come back around and be like, damn, I really wish I was at work for 20 hours today. <laughs> you mm. know, I miss these people. I miss all the camera guys and the sound people and our costume department and all our dressers. We didn't get to say goodbye. And, and you know, and a lot of them were going through really difficult things. I mean, so, some of our our crew, like I said, lost parents. And, yeah. and so... I don't know. I think it was like one of the most special things I've ever been a part of, for sure. And and it's something that I'm like, I can't believe we did it. You know, and now I feel like the like talk shows and stuff have kind of all adapted. But that was like really the first <laughs> yeah. like version of that. And it was so it kind of reminded me of like being in Chicago and being like, let's try and throw together a sketch show. Yeah. Considering, you know, the the initial subject of this conversation is a a film sketch did it make you long for live sketches in a way where you're like in so much as like i think the show has done a lot more video sketches recently it as as the makeup of the show has happened did it like make you appreciate live sketches in a way that you maybe i don't say like we're over it but we're um a little bit 
like it's maybe it had become less special just because you've been doing it for eight years. Did it did it like re inspire you to sort of like get in front of those those people in front of that cold room or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I'm like scared I'm going to start crying, but I think <laughs> you know, honestly, like for having been at the show for so long, and. and and also, like, I don't do live shows the way I used to. I mean, when I was in Chicago, I did sometimes 10 shows in a week. And that, I just don't really do that anymore because I am working on Trill or whatever. And so being at SNL, it's like, I think being away from it and having to do those shows at home, I've kind of like, it's made me truly appreciate and sort of fall in love with like a live audience all mm. over again. Like how much I miss that. And how much, you know, especially at SNL, sometimes if you write something that you love and has made you and your friends laugh all week, and then it eats shit at dress, and you're like, damn, I really loved that thing, but that audience hated it, yeah. and fuck that audience. <laughs> they didn't get it, because they yeah. were fans of Justin Bieber or whatever, and that's why yeah. they, they waited out all night for those tickets, and they ruined my good sketch. And so you, like... There are times where you have like this kind of adversarial feeling towards the audience where you're like, I wish you got that sketch or whatever, you know? Yeah. And like, I do feel like being forced to do comedy in my living room in front of a green screen with my husband and dog as my only like sounding board, it did make me like, oh yeah, I get to do one of the most special things in the world and I get to do it at this place that's done it for almost 50 years in this room where magic happens, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. it sounds so corny, but it, it really is like, it's a very special place, and that room really allows for extremely stupid shit to get huge laughs, and like, what a joy, you know? Yeah. Do you know what you're gonna do about Shrill at this point? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, we're currently writing the third season in like a Zoom room. Um, mm -hmm. And we're almost done because we've been doing it for a couple months now. And I mean, the plan is to start shooting in September. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it's got to be safe and and we'll go from there. And my plan is to make it to SNL as much as I can until we're done shooting. It shouldn't overlap too much, but it's mm -hmm. it's gonna be an it's gonna be complicated and it's gonna be really odd. And I know I'm not the only cast member in that position. So it's it's gonna be difficult. But it's also I think it's, you know, we're seeing our world is gonna change and and people are gonna just have to be flexible, <laughs> you know, yeah. on some level. Think of overnight salad um, as it is, as it is our focus, you know. Um, I know. I'm like, I'm like, absolutely talking about how beautiful audiences are are with t that, tears in my look, eyes. That's, <laughs> that's, the that's the range we try to go for. Um, you know, are there? You know, why do you think, or how do you think th this was a, only a sketch you could have done in your your eighth season? After two seasons of doing Shrill, being in terms of sort of personal growth or sort of artistic growth. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. <laughs> it's just true. I think on some level, Shrill really allows me to express a part of myself that sometimes in my early years at SNL, I was like, I want to be able to write something with a little more heart or a little more story or a little, you know, and so mm -hmm. there was like a frustration there. And and now I've been able to do that. And 
it's I'm incredibly proud of it, but it really lets me come back to SNL and be like, I want to play a lady with like um, a ten gallons of mayonnaise, or I I want to play a lady who makes out with her dog, or like you know, it just it, it's like you really get to have the space for both, and and yeah, just what you said. I mean, I think being at the show for this long, you you work really hard, you grind really hard, and you get. Lauren's trust, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it's something I think I've I've worked really hard to get. So when I bring a piece like Overnight Salad or like Joan or whatever, he trusts. And yeah. that that is like the greatest vote of confidence because he's really, you know, he, he really has like an overwhelming grasp on show business. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes when you bring something that seems insane and stupid to have someone who is Mr. Show Business be like, yeah, go for it. Yeah. It's, a, it's a huge vote of confidence that lets you be like, okay, great. And actually, I do care about the production design and I do care about all, how it's going to be shot and I, I really care about how it's edited together. And so, you know, there's, it, it is the ultimate production boot camp and there, there's a reason like, so many people have gone on to make their own things. It's like you are really given the keys to drive. Yeah. You know, it, does it feel like, you know, SNL is this institution. And when you start there, I imagine it feels like I am like part of this machine that like makes the show happen. And, I, and, and mm-hmm. as time goes on, you carve out a niche there. And I think as you've done, you sort of you've done there the show, especially over the last few years, but also having Shrill and everything else you're doing. You know, where it's not like you are SNL's A.D. Bryant, you're A.D. Bryant, a person who is on SNL. Do you feel that distinction? Or um, as I wrote in a very stupid way, I don't know why I wrote the question this way, but, you know, instead of being known as little baby A.D. on the show (laughs) based on the musical digital shorts, being seen as grown lady A.D.? Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, I very much hope I can be grown lady A.D. And, you know, like... I think I feel very realistic about, like, I can't, I don't want to, and I can't stay at SNL forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and I want to make room for those new people to become the fifth-year people, you know, and this eighth-year people. And so, uh, and they're ready, you know? Yeah. Like, look at Bowen, look at Ego, look at Heidi, look at Melissa, look at Chris Red. Like, they're ready, you know? It's yeah. happening. Um so it is, it's like kind of a bittersweet, weird moment, but, uh, but I'm also, you know, it's funny, like sometimes I'll be on a plane and someone will be like, hey, little baby 80. And I'm like, wow, I feel 400 years old. <laughs> yeah. How dare you call me little baby 80? But I also am like really grateful for that time. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I, I, I look forward to... <laughs> being 400 years old, yeah. which is how I feel. <laughs> every person, it's it's actually sort of crazy preparing for this. Every interview you've ever done has someone's like, when are you leaving the show? Even as I early know. as like your second season, people are like, so what are you going to do next? And, <laughs> you know, your answer is sort of like, you know, it'll be when the time is right. But like, do you have a sense of what you think or hope it will feel like? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yeah. when I feel this thing, then I'll know. It's such a good question because I literally have asked like Fred Armisen, Andy Samberg, like Rob Klein, all these people who like I've asked them, like, what is that feeling? Like, how do you know? 
and they always just say like you'll know and it's funny because i actually think <laughs> like on some level i think i was getting to that feeling you know yeah. i think i was getting there and then these at home shows happened and then everything was kind of turned upside down and i'm like i don't have that feeling right now so you know i don't know i i'm yeah. waiting i'm waiting to know <laughs> that feeling and and, you know, my hope is that I'll know that feeling at the same time as Kate and Cecily or or yeah. some of the people who I started there with and, um, you know, Beck and Kyle. Because I think, you know, it is it is kind of like a generational thing and it's kind of like your class, mm. you know, that you come up with. And, I mean, I was just thinking about this the other day that, like, you know, Kate, when we first started, was like this little dorky freaky alien who was like a, just a little New York goof and Cecily and I were such like Chicago <laughs> hicks essentially yeah. and like you know just I was just thinking about how like how different things are now and how we're all juggling other productions on top of SNL and all these things and just what a massive massive change it is and you know, I can feel that. Like, I yeah. can feel that part of it, and that feels like part of the feeling, <laughs> you know? But I, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> uh, so that sound means it's time for uh, our final segment. It's the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Okay. So, great. Um, one of the things, because of the internet, uh, we don't see anymore is best of SNL DVDs. Um, <laughs> but we grew up with a generation of those. As fast as you can, can you think of, like, if you were to make your own best of A.D. Bryant, what do you oh want to be on God. it? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is hell. <laughs> this is a hell question. Um, okay. Uh, Dyke and Fats, Girlfriend's mm. Talk Show. Uh, I would say Waterbeds Are the Best. I would say Joan Song. Let's put Overnight Salad in the mix. Um, I, let's maybe do the paint sketch, Kalur. Mm -hmm. um, God, maybe I had like an early one that I did with Chris Pratt that felt like a big moment for me where I like sang about my big fat ass. Yes, yes, of course. Um, of course, of course. That was like maybe my second season. Um, I don't know. Is that enough? That feels like a lot. Give, I, give I me one update. One update. Character oh god okay i really like doing carrie crumb with michael but i also if i were to choose one other maybe uh seth wrote me one where i was like the worst woman on the airplane and that was mm. really fun you know snl is a show that has lots of people doing impressions you talk about how you're not necessarily uh great at them but is there an impression that you think you are good at but the show will never let you do <laughs> oh my god um <laughs> I mean, look, I think I can legally say for a fact that my Winona Judd is exactly the same as my Sarah Huckabee Sanders, <laughs> and uh, and that's all I've got. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think. No, no. I mean, I, 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 this is what I'm saying is like Kate has an absolute mind for impressions where she's like thinking about them and mm -hmm. is always whatever. I just like don't think about it i don't like them i don't like doing them i'm not good at it <laughs> i feel so like i don't I, even i feel like i, I heard you do a bart simpson oh yeah well okay i mean i think i have a pretty good bart pretty good marge <laughs> um 
you know, but who doesn't have those, you sure. know? <laughs> Can you do either for the fans? Oh my God, this is humiliating. I feel like, like, isn't it just like, hey man. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. <laughs> that's my Bart. I would say my Marge is more like, Oh, I can't even do it. I panicked. I'm, I'm too stressed. This is uh, why I can't do them, you know? Um, do you have a favorite sketch or sketch idea that you tried multiple times, be it at table or dress rehearsal, that didn't air? Maybe you'll try it again or not. That's sort of the one that got away that oh you're willing God. to tell me about? Yeah. I mean, I will say Kate and I had one that literally haunted our dreams that was that we did end up doing this season uh, with RuPaul called the old New York mm -hmm. show or something. That was one that had been haunting us. So that was a major, major deal for us. Um, but I guess. Let's see. I mean, there, there was a thing that I did in my audition that like for years producers would be like, you gotta turn that into a sketch. You gotta turn that into a sketch. Other writers would be like, I would love to take crack at it. I've done it a couple times at the table. I just don't think it translates. And it's mm -hmm. a, a sketch I used to do at Second City, which is basically like Dolly Mae Daniels and her all ex-husband band. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, I mean, very much in the vein of what we're talking about. What I'm realizing is I only do one thing, which is like sing sort of sweet songs and then scream. Yes. Um, but basically, that's kind of what happens where I like sing about all the different ex-husbands. And then on the last one, I essentially like full blown Mystic River style, like scream fuck you at this man <laughs> over and over again with like deep fury. Mm. And um, and it's just something that like you kind of need to say fuck, you know. Yeah. Um, and we've tried doing like, you know, you suck. <laughs> like yeah. it just it just doesn't quite translate. So that's that's maybe the one that got away that I loved mm. doing at Second City that like I wish I could figure out a way to do it. But I don't know. Yeah. Do you do you have a comedy crush? Oh my God. Yeah. Meg Stalter. I'm oh. I'm obsessed. Um I think you know, she's Chicago, she's character-y, she's like sexy, but wild and mean, and I just love her. Like, I just can't stop. I, uh, I mean, I have lots, but that's, great. That, that's right. off the top of my, my noggin. Um, this, will, uh, this will be the last one. What is the earliest line you remember saying on SNL, be it in a sketch you wrote, a sketch you're proud of, just, you know, at the beginning, people just sort of like do walk on lines or whatever. Do you remember mm -hmm. the first first thing you said? Yeah, my first sketch, I had one line, or my first episode, I had one line in the whole thing. And it was just this scene where basically every single person was doing that thing where they're like, so then I was like, oh, my God, blah, blah, blah. And then he was yeah. like this, blah, blah. and I had to come in and say, like, you look amazing. Oh, look at me. I'm like, like, I'm obsessed with you or something. And that was my only line. And I remember, like, I just, like, practiced it and practiced it. And then the next day, like, my family was like, you didn't. That was amazing. You did an amazing job. <laughs> you know, and it was, like, truly, like, five words. <laughs> but look, look at you now. <laughs> yes, look at me now. I'm on a podcast, baby. Um, that's it. That's the end of the interview. 
Okay. Oh, oh my God. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Shrill on Hulu, Saturday Night Live. I mean, you know it's deal. It's all for the summer, but traditionally it airs live Saturday nights on NBC. You can watch old episodes on Hulu or the NBC app and clips on YouTube. Follow 80 on Instagram at 80 Bride. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Jenny Slade. Have a good one. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.